climate change is a threat multiplier. It's not just about one move on the chessboard, but it's more so about understanding that it's a part of a bigger strategy to move several pieces as we you know, fight for climate justice. to Amplifier, Raising Voices Against Rising Temperatures. We're a group of Emory students, alumni, and a professor passionate about bringing people together around the current climate crisis. We aim to equip listeners to accelerate climate action by providing accessible information, amplifying diverse voices, and highlighting the intersections of environmental issues. Join us this season as we explore the relationship between the climate crisis and COVID-19. In 2005, Hurricane Katrina hit the Gulf Coast, becoming one of the most deadly and costly storms in U.S. history, and one of the most salient examples of minority communities being disproportionately threatened by severe weather and climate change. In other words, environmental racism, a concept of the environmental justice movement that describes the disproportional impact environmental factors have on Black, Indigenous, and communities of color. Fifteen years after Katrina's initial devastation, community organizer Troy Robertson and the Gulf Coast Center for Law and Policy are continuing to organize and mobilize their community throughout the South. I'm Hallie Bradshaw, and on this episode of Amplifier, I sit down with Troy to discuss his experiences as a grassroots organizer in the fight for climate justice. My name is Troy Robertson, and I am a regional organizer with the Gulf Coast Center for Law and Policy, which is a public interest law firm um, that Uh, works to advance climate justice and ecological equity um, in communities on the front line of climate change. Uh, We work in five uh, Gulf South states, Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, and Florida. Um, My work particularly revolves around water. So I do a lot of policy advocacy on a federal level, um, pushing for federal dollars to be um, funneled to the ground, to be used to build up our infrastructure and to make sure that our communities are uh, more equipped um, as these as flooding and climate change intensifies. For Katrina 15, we brought together a bunch of frontline folks from Mississippi, from Alabama, from Louisiana, to basically commemorate the people who lost their lives and uh, to uplift the communities that were able uh, to withstand a storm and to also highlight the great work that's being done by so many people across the Gulf South uh, to advance climate justice and to to build community. I was born and raised in New Orleans and was surrounded by family and friends who all loved and supported me. Growing up in New Orleans definitely um, imparted upon me a sense of community. Generally, people were very warm and hospitable here, and I think that that rubbed off on me. New Orleans has this... um, this indescribable essence that you just have to experience. It's, it's hard to put it into words, but you have to be here. And it has this mesmerizing allure that pulls people in. What, but what I really appreciate about uh, my city the most is that it has a rich, complex history.
Waves of water are already washing over parking lots in the greater New Orleans area. Some of the first signs of the approach of Hurricane Katrina. And I'm Jeff Morrow in Covington, Louisiana. Again, the effects of this hurricane just starting to be felt here. Just the backstory behind Katrina. Um, I was one of the few people who was fortunate enough. Uh, my family, we were fortunate enough to have some funds saved up uh, to evacuate because a lot of people tend to forget that evacuations, especially if you have to do them often, are very expensive. You have to get in the car, you have to know where you're going, you have to pay for a hotel, pay for food. Um, but fortunately, we were able to do that. We, uh, we were in Dallas for about a month and a half. Um, but I just remember, you know, cutting on the television and just trying to uh, stay abreast of what was going on with my family. But I remember one vivid day we turned television on and I just saw you know, families um, stranded on bridges, uh, on houses, thousands upon thousands of people in front of the Superdome, bodies floating in water, just, and, and that just left, uh, I still have those images in my mind and that Katrina, for the most part, what I would say, Katrina activated me. It, it made me develop this, um, this like endless appetite to, to learn more about what would happen because as a, 11 year old um, kid, you, you know, you can't explain what's wrong, but you intuitively know that something was wrong. In our last episode, we met with Gayla Tillman from Georgia Conservation Voters. Gayla is an organizer deeply familiar with the far reaching impacts of environmental racism in their Atlanta community and beyond. As explained by Gayla and then Troy, because environmental racism acts on all areas of society, the response of environmental justice must be equally as intersectional. For instance, if you poll someone and say like, hey, what's the thing that you feel is most important to your life right now? There are some folks that are going to say paying my bills. There are some folks that are going to say healthcare. And if you think of those things as purely uh, as bills, as purely economic, or healthcare as purely health, then you don't actually see the perspective of how people who live in proximity to coal ash plants have disproportionate effects on their health, how people who have had their neighborhoods leveled with too much asphalt and not enough trees, how that impacts their health, but also how the decisions of the Public Service Commission impacts people's power bills, and they impact them significantly. Uh, Georgia is, I want to say, number three in energy burden in the nation. All of the different background and organizing that I have has really helped me understand how none of us live single-issue lives and how all of us are battling something, and in some way, they're connected to each other. It's bittersweet in that, like, white supremacy controls and touches so much. It's also sweet in that because it touches so much, there are so many people willing to throw down and to organize with you. What I want to continue to emphasize to people is that Katrina essentially exposed the layers of injustices and inequities that have persisted along racial and economic lines in our city, state, and country for generations. Mm -hmm. um, in college, I had the opportunity to conduct research um, and my thesis was entitled The Illusion of Recovery in New Orleans, Misplaced, Displaced, and Replaced, in which I investigated how 
Uh, political language was used by politicians and policymakers to disguise a racially inequitable recovery. While people were dealing with the trauma from Hurricane Katrina, it was used as an opportunity to demolish public housing um, units across the city of New Orleans without the consent of the residents or the people who live there, and then to refashion those communities uh, with what people call mixed income housing. As we look into the realm of education in New Orleans, while teachers and other people were still reeling from the impacts of Hurricane Katrina, um, the Orleans Parish School Board terminated all empl employment contracts, um, initiating the largest mass firing of public school teachers in the nation's history. Mm -hmm. um, another example would be Charity Hospital, which serves as, um, at the time, it was the second oldest continually operating public hospital in the country. It was uh, considered critical uh, critically important for medical care in New Orleans, especially for black, brown, and low-income communities. Everyone that I grew up with in New Orleans um, would all say I was born in Charity Hospital. That's just how big and not, that's how much of an impact it had on us. But after Katrina, uh, there was a proposal because there was a lot of damage to, there was a proposal put on the table to retrofit Charity, which would cost around 500 million, um, if not a little bit more, but instead of going with that option, um, UMC, the United Medical Center, the Uni University Medical Center was constructed at a stunning $1.1 billion, which also resulted in the demolition of um, hundreds of homes in a mid-city neighborhood, which historically has been a diverse community populated by working class folks. Um, their homes were taken by eminent domain to make way for these new developments. And all in all, Katrina effectively exposed like the cesspool of injustices that we've been dealing with all the way up until now. And it's, it's going to continue until we address the root causes. Addressing those root causes is the foundation of climate justice, the effort to achieve equity for frontline communities as it relates to the impacts of climate change. This just so happens to be the primary focus of the work done by the Gulf Coast Center for Law and Policy. Climate justice looks like a massive shift in our collective consciousness. It looks like a clear understanding and acceptance of pertinent facts related to climate change, including the disproportionate impact that it has on Black, Brown, Indigenous, and low-income communities. Um, it is an acknowledgement of the role that oil, coal, gas, plastic, petrochemical, agricultural industries play in disproportionately affecting communities of color, polluting waterways, um, destroying ecosystems of the natural world, and jeopardizing human health, while at the same time accelerating the climate crisis. Climate justice in the context of the Gulf South looks like people across the Gulf South connecting the dot of threats posed by climate change to coastal communities. It looks like people in the Gulf South through grassroots efforts, developing community-oriented solutions that advance equity by considering and repairing historical harms um, that those who are suffering the most um, have been inflicted by. While their areas of impact and personal experiences are different, both Troy and Gala share in their efforts to create community-level change through their work as organizers. The Gulf Coast Center for Law and Policy has a theory of change, which rests squarely on these four pillars, serving, building, cultivating, and engaging. 
We serve by supporting movement building from the ground up while centering community voices. That's really important. We build by practicing bottom-up organizing that builds community control, self-determination, and deep consultation with communities um, as it pertains to policies that are being developed. We cultivate by our continued commitment to groom and develop accountable, effective regional leaders as we build movement infrastructure in the Gulf South. And the Gulf Coast Center for Law and Policy engages by developing out policy um, and advocacy that supports grassroots human rights organizing um, that targets ecological equity and climate justice on a local, state, and federal level. Um, and we do this because with grassroots organizing, we know that communities are at their best when they can speak for themselves from their collective experiences through democratic bottom-up organizing that centers all voices, not just those with stock portfolios and political power. Yeah, so if anything, because now after like just really trying to bring all of this back, I'm thinking about how my understanding of an organizer is just so much of understanding what it means to be a human a human in community with other people, but also where is my placement within the ecosystem? What type of person do I want to be in terms of like what change am I helping impact, but also how am I fostering community amongst people who are already doing the work? Because um, there are so many wonderful things happening and Sometimes I feel like it's a bit, se a bit segmented, uh, which is unfortunate. But yeah, if anything, this has just taught me how much power comes from good people getting into, in the words of John Lewis, getting into good trouble together and what that means. Also, you don't have as much control over that impact. Because the thing about it is like, you will see something and, you know, impact is impact, but also it's just like, do the people that you serve feel empowered? Do the people you serve or you serve with feel listened to, heard, acknowledged? In my opinion, no one should want to be the Superman of organizing because I say this all the time, the O in organizing is others. So you should always be thinking about, yes, I have the superpower, but also how do I share this? So for me, those questions that I just named are very much so why I do the grassroots approach. Organizing is far from easy work, I must say. Mm -hmm. But I think for me, it has been one of the most rewarding experiences ever. It proved to me that there is nothing more beautiful than people within their own community coming together to stand for justice, whether it be on a local, federal, or international level. The advocacy for climate justice is a global struggle. As if the world needed more to struggle with besides climate change, COVID-19 and its impacts are at the forefront of nearly everyone's minds day in and day out. Troy and Gayla are not an exception to this, but as they explain, there might be a potential silver lining we can find during these trying times. COVID definitely changed, has definitely changed, uh, forced us to evolve in a way in which um, has been a little difficult. There's, there's some give and takes. You know, as a community organizer, most of the time you, you're meeting with people in person, or you may be doing door knocking, or you may be like facilitating a meeting, but you're, you're in the physical presence of people. With COVID, because there are other restrictions and we don't want to put anyone's health in jeopardy, 
a lot of our organizing has now been online. So we've been using a number of Zoom calls. We've been using a lot, the virtual platform more so to do a lot of our organizing. And we've ramped up um, our utilization of social media. So, uh, you know, we were using social media before, but now I think a lot of people, because they can't be in the same space together, we have become really reliant on these technologies. Um, and which is on one hand great because it allows for us to stay connected and um, to really be in communication, but we we can't um, assume that this is accessible to everyone. Mm -hmm. So uh, there is a number of people who who may not necessarily know how to use Zoom or know how to use social media. So, I mean, Katrina Fifteen was virtual, mm -hmm. and if it were if it weren't for the technologies and the communication and those tools that we had, we it wouldn't have been possible. It's a strange time. <laughs> um, but if anything, it makes me feel good, mainly because just like, it's it's bittersweet because like when COVID hit, of course, for obvious reason, COVID is terrible, terrible. And I wish coronavirus would just like pack her bags and go away. Um, but I'm also just kind of glad that now when there's like these regional or statewide calls for organizers, like, people can call in from like all different everywhere. Like that is so much fun to me. That is so cheesy. But like, I love when I'm on a call and it's like, hey, I'm in Denver. Hey, I'm in Mississippi. Hey, I'm in Mobile, Alabama. Hey, I'm in Tennessee. Like it just always makes me smile to know that the powers that are currently in power are always working, but the people work harder. Like I just really feel that in my spirit. <laughs> Now more than ever, the struggle against climate change needs people working hard to fight for climate justice. One well-known vehicle that you've probably heard of is the Green New Deal, a set of legislation that aims to implement sustainable initiatives. The Gulf Coast Center for Law and Policy has set its sight on a regional version, the Gulf South for a Green New Deal. Gulf South for a Green New Deal is a multi-year, multi-state initiative to address the climate crisis through the creation of millions of jobs that advance equity and justice. Um, it, was, it is a regional formation of organizations, networks, small businesses, and engaged residents um, that work together to develop policies, um, to advance civic engagement, and to organize communities in the creation of a uniquely Gulf South version of a Green New Deal by centering the realities, power, and relevance of the Gulf South, which includes Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, and Florida. Uh, Gulf South for a Green New Deal connects long existing work in the South towards climate, racial, and economic justice. And the initiative, the purpose of the initiative is to advance regional grassroots policy and practices that centers laborers, farmers, fisher folk, tribal nations, and frontline communities as we uh, fight to, for a just transition away from the extractive economies that we know accelerate the climate crisis. And most importantly, Gulf South for a Green New Deal will build regional power, um, which disconnects to the leaders and leadership development. It will build regional leaders in power to advance a uniquely Southern collective frontline vision for a sustainable future. So what does a sustainable economy mean to you? Just thinking about the context of Gulf South for a Green New Deal, a sustainable economy is centered around sustainable communities. It's recognizing all indigenous tribes of the Gulf South as sovereign nations and following indigenous leadership. 
And at the same time, including land reform as part of reparations for Black, Brown, and Indigenous communities um, that had their land uh, either stolen or polluted. It is a sustainable economy includes investing in jobs, um, investing in research that reduces greenhouse gas emissions and cleans up toxic land. It preserves and restores wetlands and fisheries and forests. In a sustainable economy, there is widespread access to affordable, equitable housing on land that isn't polluted with access to clean, affordable drinking water and robust, reliable public transportation. And with the security and guarantee that if a hurricane strikes any community in the Gulf South, people will have the opportunity and the resources they need to return. The final question I had was to ask you simply, what can we do to support? Um, how can listeners, myself very much included, support the steps towards climate justice and the work that GCCLP is doing? The first way that you can support is by going to our website um, and clicking on press release. And if you go to press release, you'll see that there um, is a link uh, to donate uh, to people who are impacted by Hurricane Laura and other storms. And I think that that can be one way we just need to continue to build out um, mutual aid and we need to continue to make sure that people have the resources that they need to not only cope with whatever they're dealing with, whether it's a storm or flooding, but also to have the resources to recover and to come back and to rebuild. Um, I would also encourage everyone to check out Gulf South for a Green New Deal, our policy platform. Um, if you just go to our website, you'll see it in the tabs, uh, sharing out post on Facebook and Instagram. If you go on Instagram, we're, we're on a, at GCCLP and Facebook. If you just type in Gulf Coast Center for Law and Policy, you'll, you'll find us. Um, and just continuously fighting for what is right standing for climate justice and uplifting communities that have been impacted by climate change and really just taking a stand in whatever, in whatever type of work that you're doing, just making sure that it's geared towards justice, climate justice. What would you tell young people to do if you could talk to people who are voting or they're going to be voting in the future, or maybe they're just interested in working at the community level and supporting their community? What would you advise them to do to be better climate justice social justice advocates? Well, first things first, I would ask that person to realize who's in their community, honestly. Like if you're just like, wow, I care so passionately about recycling or I care passionately about people not drilling into the coast of Georgia. Like there are people in your neighborhood or somewhere in the vicinity that is that is doing work specifically around that thing. And it's a matter of like connecting with them. Also, in, if, in, in the event that that does not happen, um, feel empowered to do it yourself. Like everyone can be an organizer. Every single person has the capacity to be an organizer, whether you have a disability, whether you don't, every single person has the capacity to do so whether that be starting a petition against something that you don't like, whether that be hosting a protest or a rally, whether that be having a, um, a book club dedicated to increasing education about a certain issue within your community. Everyone has the capacity to be an organizer. The people will rise, the people will win. <laughs> and as long as you hold on to that, better days are to come.
Thank you very much to Troy and Gayla for taking the time to speak with us today. To follow Troy's work and support the Gulf Coast Center for Law and Policy, visit gcclp.org and find them on Facebook and Twitter at gcclp. You can support Gayla and the Georgia Conservation Voters by visiting their website at gcvoters.org. Today's episode was reported and produced by Hallie Bradshaw and Tyler Stern. The music was provided by Zola Berger-Schmitz and graphics by Tyler Stern. You can learn more about us on our website and YouTube channel, Emory Climate Talks. Stay tuned for our next episode, where we will be exploring the relationships between COVID-19, deforestation, and infectious diseases. COVID has affected all of our lives, but how has it impacted deforestation in places like the Amazon? What does that mean for future disease spread? Join Shirley Ma as she speaks with Dr. Alessandra Nava, a scientist at Fiocruz Amazonia in Brazil, whose research focuses on emergent and re-emergent infectious diseases caused by anthropogenic pressures including deforestation and land use change.